You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please join with me in turning to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 3. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to begin at verse 1. We'll read down to verse 15. 1 Timothy chapter 3, begin at verse 1. It is a trustworthy saying, If any man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but considerate, peaceable, free from the love of money, leading his own household well, having his children in submission with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to lead his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not indulging in much wine, not fond of dishonest gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And these men must also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife, leading their children and their own households well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you soon, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was manifested in the flesh was vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Tonight we'll set our attention on verses 14 and 15. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Let's pray together and ask the Lord's blessing on our time in His Word. Father in heaven, thank you for your work in your church in your churches that are all over the world and your work even in this city. We're thankful, Lord, that what you're doing at this church is just one part of a much greater work that is not just going on at the present time, but has been going on throughout the ages. We rejoice in the knowledge that in this way, Our Savior's bride is gathered. In this way, His disciples are trained. In this way, Your name is magnified in the earth. Your your truth goes forth. And it will be this way as Jesus builds His church until the day that He comes for us and we meet Him face to face. Tonight, Lord, as we think about what it means to be your church, I pray that you would enlighten our minds and hearts, that you would instruct us and 
Encourage us and where needed, Lord, correct us and convict us. You know our need tonight. We will thank You for Your good work, Your faithful work in the lives of Your people. We also pray, as has been mentioned, for anyone who is not yet spiritually alive, not joined to Your Son, not reconciled to You. We ask that even this night might be a night when You call the dead from the graves, their spiritual graves, and unite them in life with Your Son through belief in the Gospel. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you love Jesus, you love what He loves. If you are committed to Jesus, you are committed to what He would have you be committed to. No such thing as someone who loves Jesus but doesn't love what He loves. No such thing as someone who is committed to Christ, but unwilling to be committed to what your Lord would have you be committed to. So that if you love Jesus, you must love the local church. Jesus loved the church and gave His life for it. Jesus said, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. He has done that. He is doing that. He will do that. Nothing will thwart that. Nothing will resist that. The omnipotent Son of God has promised that He would do this, and He's doing it. You can't love Jesus and not love His church. And knowing that our Lord is the one who's building His church, He's the one who gives gifted men to His church, He's the one who by the Spirit has distributed the ascension gifts to the church so that we're actually gifted to serve with each other and on behalf of each other. I mean, the very fact that we're all gifted by the Spirit from the moment of conversion for ministry should communicate to us that we're not meant to live our lives in isolation, content just with our own families, but rather this is the family of God. And we're meant to serve the Lord here in the midst of His people. So we can't be committed to Christ and not be committed to His church. Sadly, as you know, there, there's, there's a lot in this world that claims to be the church of Jesus Christ that isn't the church of Jesus Christ. And even where you find the genuine church of Jesus Christ, I mean, the gospel is there and the ordinances are there. And you have true believers there, even, even where that is true, oftentimes you find churches that are very disorganized, out of order. There's a lot of spiritual disease that is there for everyone to see. What makes that especially sad, the latter thing, the latter thing I mentioned, where you have genuine churches, but, but there's a disorder and there's a lack of health, what makes that especially sad is we have God-inspired letters given to us for the very purpose that we would never find ourselves in that position, that we would know how the church is to function. There's a man named Bob Smith who once wrote a book about elders. It was entitled, When All Else Fails, Read the Directions. That's how we feel sometimes, isn't it? I mean, have we read the directions? Well, what we have here in the verses that we've just read represent the fact that Paul was giving directions. Verse 14, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you soon, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God the pillar and support of the truth. And it ought to be clear to you, he's not talking about the church universal. He's not just talking about the church as the people of God. He's talking about the church in its organizational sense, in its institutional sense. He's talking about the local church. The family of God represented in a particular location with God-ordained leadership, with a, a God-ordained structure and a set of directions that are inspired that represent the very law of God, the authority of God, telling us how we're to function in this household. 
when all else fails, read the directions. What I want to emphasize tonight as we look at these two verses is the importance of the local church. Maybe this is where we always need to begin if we're going to be reoriented, if we're going to find stability, if in some way we've strayed and we need to get back to the basics. Maybe the very first place to begin is by reminding ourselves that the church is supremely important. And you find error on, on both ends of the spectrum when it comes to that idea. Is the church important? Is it important? The local church, is it important? As you know, there are many people who treat the church as though it's not important at all. What they want to emphasize is the church universal. What they want to emphasize is the church is not the place, it's the people. It's not the organization, it's the people. This is, this is their mindset. In fact, you've probably met someone who said something like this, I'm a Christian, I just don't see the need to go to church. I love Jesus, I just don't see the need to be a part of a church. Talking about the local church. And so their mindset is it's possible to love the true and living God and to love the Savior of the church, but then completely ignore the emphasis on the local church that you find throughout the New Testament. And indeed, the greatest emphasis in the New Testament is not on the church universal as much as it's on the church universal in its expressed existence in assemblies, local assemblies. The local church is emphasized. And where you find this error, you find people who sometimes will, will magnify parachurch organizations to the place where they hold equal standing with the local church. I mean, I don't, I don't need to be a part of a local church. I have a Tuesday night Bible study. I don't need to be a part of a local church because I have my college ministry that I belong to. I don't need to be a part of a local church. Our family reads the Scriptures together every week, and we pray together. We have church at the lake. We have church at the Deerleys. So you have that kind of error. The church isn't really that important. The local church. And even where some, some would say they understand the importance of the local church, then the way they behave says it's not that important to them. They're not even present in a way faithful enough to be involved in any kind of real ministry. I'll be there if it doesn't interfere with my work. I'll be there if it doesn't interfere with my pleasures. I'll be there if I can fit it into my retirement plans, my travel plans. I'm going to work my, my life away in this temporal world, and when I finish my work life, we're going to get an RV. And we're just going to travel the world because a local church can't be that important, can it? That's one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum are people who treat the church as important, but they don't really see the church through New Testament eyes. They have their own ideas about what the church exists for. Maybe you've met someone who says something like this, I believe the church is a spiritual hospital. Yes, it's important, and we give our lives there, and so it's, it's a place for the spiritually sick, and we're there to minister love and compassion and, and encouragement to hurting souls. And so so they, they grasp hold of maybe one aspect of legitimate ministry and ignore a whole world of truth as to what the church is meant to be, which is why in some of those places you will never find church discipline. Why sin is never confronted. Why no one cares enough about how you're doing spiritually to ever ask you how you're doing. Or to confront sin in your life. Even we're not talking about formal discipline. Just to say, hey, are you doing okay? I've missed you. Where are you at? We don't see you. Are you doing okay? And so the church becomes the place where you find your friends 
The church becomes the place where you have a set of traditions that sometimes spans generations. There's the things we do in the spring and the things we do in the fall and the things we do in the summer camps and all that. And we get used to sort of the rhythm of our tradition. So the church is important. But you go into some of those churches and begin to teach the Word of God. And the more the church actually becomes what God meant for the church to be, now people are ready to leave. So we voice a belief in the importance of the church, but it's not really looking at the church through New Testament eyes. Is the church, as it is revealed to us on the pages of Scripture, important? Well, tonight I want to point out from our two verses five evidences of the importance of the local church. Some of this has to do with context, but I think you'll be able to see why the points that I'm going to make fit the context and fit the text. Here's the first evidence of the importance of the local church. First of all, it is seen in Paul's passion for the church. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Spirit of God giving us the words of God through the Apostle Paul. But make no mistake about it, this at the same time reveals his mindset about the churches. And what is plain all over Paul's letters is the passion that he has in his heart when it comes to local churches. The very way that he describes the church in verse 15 is striking, isn't it? What, what are we? What, what is this local expression of the family of God? It's a household. It is a family. How you ought to conduct yourself in the household of God, in the family of God. Yes, the family is larger than just this one local expression of it. We have students here tonight from Cornerstone. They are our brothers. Larger than this one local church, but make no mistake about it, what a true church represents. I mean, you, you don't join it apart from regeneration, a confession of faith in Christ. You don't, you're not accepted as a member apart from biblical baptism, wherein you identify yourself with Christ. What you have in a local church is the household of God. That's high. That's lofty. And it is the assembly. It is the church of the living God. What, what our gathering represents every Lord's Day is not just some sort of tradition. We don't just meet in the name of the true and living God. We are the product of the true and living God. We are the church because of His saving work in our lives. He has made us what we are now in Christ Jesus. And we meet in His presence. And He is the Lord of this congregation. Jesus is the head of this congregation. He is the chief shepherd of us all. This is not dead religion. It's the assembly of a living God. The only living God. And we have a function. Right now, in this age, in this community, every local church serves as the place where the truth of God is upheld, put on display, and proclaimed and defended. The pillar and the support of the truth. That's what the local church is. You've heard me say it many times. Is there a place in the world where I can find the truth? And the answer is the church. The church. This is not said about any parachurch organization. This is not said about your family. Yes, you as an individual proclaim the truth, and you as a family proclaim the truth, and at your college ministry you're going to find the truth, and wherever else you want to mention, the Christian radio station at times may stumble into the truth. But the church, ordained by God, chosen by God to be the pillar and support of the truth in this world. Here is Paul, recently released from his first Roman imprisonment, he is visiting cities where the gospel had 
taken root where churches had come into existence, visiting those cities, following back up, giving encouragement and instruction. He leaves Timothy in Ephesus because there are certain things that need to be put in order. That's a difficult work, by the way. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. Paul writes to Timothy, As I exhorted you when going to Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may command certain ones not to teach a different doctrine. Timothy's having to do the hard work of dealing with doctrinal error. And apparently he's wanted to leave more than once because when Paul went to Macedonia, he told him, stay there. And now in this letter, he's telling him again, stay there. Stay there. He says in our verses that he's hoping to come to them personally in a short time. But just in case, he's delayed in case he can't get there himself. He wants to make sure they have this letter so that they'll know how to function. All this says that this is no small matter to him. I mean, this is a man who's been put in prison because of what he's preached, the gospel, and because of his ministry to the churches. And he still has passion in his heart for these assemblies. That says how important they are. So important, in fact, you weren't going to go with Paul. You were going to travel with Paul unless you were all in. This was not work for half-hearted commitment. Acts 15.36, And after some days Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with him one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now you can argue that Paul made a mistake there. There's no doubt that John Mark went on to be very useful. Paul himself acknowledges that. Barnabas had a role to play in the life of John Mark. But doesn't it tell you something about Paul's attitude when it comes to the strengthening of the churches? I don't think it best to take someone with us who has already proven that he will leave in the midst of the work. Acts 16, verse 1, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. Right? It's not, it's not willy-nilly. It's not just do whatever you want to do. There's apostolic authority and apostolic doctrine, and there are ways that have been established in the company of apostles and elders that are now meant to be passed on to the churches, you see. Verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Paul's concern is not just for individual believers. Paul's concern is for assemblies. So important is the work. You don't go with me unless you're all in. So important is the work. You don't just do whatever you think is right. In fact, I'm going to write a letter to you telling you how to conduct yourself, how God would have you to conduct yourself. This is a man who has passion when it comes to local church ministry. This also showed up and weighed him down. What weighed on his heart. 2 Corinthians 11.23 and following is always amazing to me. Listen to this. He says, Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. Right, Paul under attack from so-called super apostles. Even some believers have been influenced by their slander of Him and their running down of Him. And so for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of churches, he is driven to what really is a foolish venture, which is, let me de defend myself. I'm talking like a madman. But he goes on to explain, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, 
often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Imagine being lashed 39 times. And it's happened to him five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. That's a pretty rough list, wouldn't you agree? And yet, listen to how he ends this section. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Does the local church matter? Is it important? Well, listen to Paul's passion for the churches. One who is commissioned by the Lord Jesus Himself face to face, given His purpose, given His calling, this man has a passion for the local church. Second, you see the importance of the local church in Paul's patience with the church. Read Paul's letters in general, but read 1 Timothy. Read the pastoral epistles, and you're going to see the churches were full of problems. This is why he says, I have this daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul, why are you anxious? Because almost every church he knows of is full of trouble in one way or another. If you just walk through 1 Timothy, this book, there's reference to false doctrine in chapter 1. I left you, he says, there at Ephesus. Don't leave. I've exhorted you to stay there so that certain ones will be commanded not to teach a different doctrine. False doctrine, chapter 1. Disorder in worship, chapter 2. I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over men. So he's setting things in order about how people ought to function in the local church. Disorder in worship. The need for qualified leaders, chapter 3. The discouragement that comes from apostasy, chapter 4, verse 1, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith. And on he goes talking about the reality of apostasy. Chapters 5 and 6 deal with relationships across the spectrum because the Lord knows the church is full of relational problems. Chapter 6, he warns his son of the faith about materialism and greed. If the church is not God's plan, the local church, why would you devote yourself to that work to the point you end up imprisoned, to the point you end up beaten numerous times, to the point you face death? Why would you do this if it's not God's plan? Because these assemblies are full of problems. Yet he patiently, persistently, diligently gives his life on behalf of the church. Walk through the seven letters that our Lord delivers to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And five of the seven are full of problems. The two that are not are, are suffering churches. Read the book of Ephesians, you'll see problems. Read the book of Galatians, you'll see problems. Read the two letters to the Corinthians, you'll see problems. Read the letters to the Thessalonians, you'll see problems. Read the letters to the Philippians, you'll see problems. Why does this man continue to give his life on behalf of local assemblies? Why is he able to talk about the disappointment of being put on trial and no one came to his defense after all of that outpouring of his life? No one stands by him in his moment of need, yet he's still writing a letter giving instruction. Why such patience with the church? Because it's the Lord's plan for us, isn't it? Dear ones, you should know something. Anyone who wants to check out of the church because the church has problems has a mindset contrary to the New Testament. I've told people before, if you just read 1 Corinthians you would think the apostle would tell you, leave that church. But he doesn't. This is a church where they were 
Talk about problems, getting drunk at the Lord's table, suing each other in court, a man living in open immorality with his stepmother. And we could go on and on and on, and yet what does he do? He points them to the truth. He calls them to repentance. Despite all of its problems, it's still God's plan for the pillar and support of the truth in this world. His passion for the church says it's important. His patience with the church says it is important. Third, the importance of the church is seen in the urgency and the sobriety of Paul's instruction. How important is the church? It's so important that there is divine authoritative truth given so that the church will know how the church is to function. And that truth is given in such a way that it it represents commandment. A charge, a directive. Seven times in 1 Timothy, seven times, form of the word parangelo is used, and that's a strong word. Authoritative instruction, urgent, sober instruction. It calls for obedience. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Look there real quickly. I'll just walk you through the references. You can see it with your eyes. 1 Timothy 1 3. As I exhorted you when going to Macedonia, Remain on at Ephesus so that you may command. There is our word. Command certain ones not to teach a different doctrine. Verse 5, But the goal of our command is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and an unhypocritical faith. That's talking about all the preaching and teaching that goes on in the church. It has in it the, the authority of God. The command of God is being delivered in the Word of God. Chapter 1, verse 18, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight. Chapter 5, verse 21, I solemnly charge you, charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of His elect angels to observe these instructions without bias, doing nothing in partiality. Chapter 6, verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 17, command those who are rich in the present age not to be haughty or to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Seven times, I command, I charge. This is urgent instruction. This is authoritative instruction. It requires our obedience. And the last three that I mention are especially striking because the charge is given in the context of God's very presence. Verse 13, chapter 6, I charge you in the presence of God. Chapter 5, verse 21, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you. I mean, when you deal with the Lord's church, you're dealing with matters that all of heaven takes an interest in. The Father is present, the Son is present, the angels are aware of what the church is being charged with. One day we're going to all give an account those of us who serve in the Lord's church, for our part, for what work we've done. Peter exhorts elders about this in 1 Peter 5 when he says, when the chief shepherd appears. When the chief shepherd appears. 1 Corinthians 3.10, According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved but only as through fire. You think, I won't care about a judgment given the fact all my sins are forgiven, I'm going to be in heaven. Dear brother or sister, you will care. 
when one day we stand before the Lord Jesus and we, and though he's talking here about the work he's done as, a, as a, an apostle and others who served in the same sort of way, each one of us will be examined as to what we have done with what Christ has given to us for ministry. We will care whether our work passes the test, whether it's rewardable or it's wood, hay, stubble. Do you not know that you're God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? And that's plural. He's talking about the church. Don't you know the church is the temple of the living God? That God's Spirit is here? Which is why he warns, verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Is the church important? Let someone destroy the church, God destroys him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. The importance of the church seen in Paul's passion. The importance of the church seen in Paul's patience. He's going to give his life to the church with all of its problems and all of its warts. This is God's plan and he knows it. Seen in the urgency and the sobriety of the instruction that's given to the church. These are commands from heaven because all of heaven takes an interest in what happens with the church. We are the Lord's temple. Fourth, the importance of the church is seen by the detailed nature of Paul's instructions. The detailed nature of Paul's instructions. He is writing some very detailed things in this letter, 1 Timothy, even down to the qualifications for pastors, etc. And he says, I'm writing these things so that you will know how to conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. The church is so important that we don't have a right to do just whatever it is we want. No one has a right to do in the Lord's church just whatever they want. There is behavior appropriate to the Lord's church. And that this is what he's writing about. And that behavior doesn't come to us naturally. We have to be taught it. It has to be learned. How is a church to function? You have to go to the New Testament and you have to learn it. And the appropriate behavior is passed on to us from God. A church doesn't function according to the way the people want it to function. It functions according to the way the Lord of the church wants it to function. Where do we find where, what that is? The answer, the Word of God. That's what Paul is writing. Instructions. So that churches would know how churches are to function. When all else fails, read the directions. Because what's important is not what you want and not what I want. But what the Lord of the church wants. And you find that in the Word of God. There is organization in the Lord's church. There are appropriate roles for men and women. We don't get to make that up. The Bible tells us what it is. There are pastors and deacons. That is, Christ has established the offices that exist in the church. We don't make that up. There are qualifications for those offices. Not everybody's qualified. There's an appropriate way for those leaders to conduct themselves, which is why you find all the instruction that he gives to Timothy. And there's an appropriate way for the church to respond to those leaders, which is why he tells Timothy, don't let any, anyone disrespect you based upon your youthfulness. Just as there were people resisting Paul's authority, there were people resisting Timothy's. I want you to stay there in Ephesus. I know it's hard, young man, but you stay there because there's a job for you to do. The church has to learn how to respond to what you're teaching them. All this speaks of the fact that the church is not just a group of believers who decide to get in the same room with each other. A bunch of believers gather somewhere. We have a church. Well, is it established according to the Word of God? Do you have elders? Do you have deacons? Is there organization? Is there structure? Well, the ordinance is there. No, it's not just a group of believers in a room. The New Testament describes and defines what the church is. So when you look at the detailed instructions that he gives, you see how important the church is. It's, not, it's, it's too important just to go about it just any way we would want to. God has given us the instructions. The fifth evidence, the last one that I'll mention is the importance of the church is seen by the problems faced in the Lord's church. 
I noted this earlier. One of the reasons Paul's writing these instructions is because the churches are struggling with many different things. Even Timothy there in Ephesus is having to battle with things. And so we might ask, why has the church for 2,000 years, the churches, been filled with so many problems? There are two explanations for this, I think. One is because a genuine church with regenerate church membership and biblical baptism is still not a glorified church. How many of my brothers and sisters tonight know you still battle with sin? If that's true, would you say amen? The flesh is still there. Which is why we have relational issues and why we have all sorts of sin issues. And you have people at varying levels of maturity. And one of the things we have to battle is people who think they're more mature than they are. People at differing levels of understanding. Some people ready to tell you everything they understand, though they understand nothing, virtually speaking. Some people more characterized by the fullness of the Spirit than others. Don't forget that they're in Acts 6 when they're selecting men to carry out ministry. They're to look for men full of the Spirit. Well, every believer has the Holy Spirit. The question is, are you someone characterized by being filled with the Spirit? We're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Is it evident in your life? This is a man or a woman who walks by the Spirit. Churches are going to have people who are oftentimes characterized by fleshly activity instead of Spirit-led activity. You're going to have people that are unfaithful to the Lord's instructions. I mean, the Bible says it, and they just ignore it. The Bible says it, they just disobey it. And so there's a process by which they're confronted and called to faithfulness and called to repentance. This is, this is church life. So one reason you have so many problems in the church is we're not yet glorified. And you have babies all the way to spiritually older men and women. Everything in between. But there's another reason there are so many problems in the church, and that is because we have a very real enemy. It's striking to me that at least twice in 1 Timothy 3, Paul mentions the devil. You see it in verse 6, 1 Timothy 3, verse 6, and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Verse 7, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Why are there so many problems in the church? Because the church has a big bullseye on it. We have a very real spiritual enemy. Now, he is God's devil. He's on a chain. I don't mean by that that God approves of his activity at all. I mean God is sovereign. Satan is not. And yet in a way that really goes beyond our ability to comprehend... God allows our enemy some freedom in this world in such a way that we battle with Him and His minions. And the results are, when we fail, are painful, sometimes very costly. But doesn't this say how important the church is that the devil is at work to destroy us? Revelation 2.10 says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Who is at work in the world stoking the fires of persecution against the Lord's people? The answer, the devil. Why doesn't God just shut him down? Why doesn't God just stop him altogether? Well, one day he will. But right now during this age, God allows a measure of freedom that in God's perfect wisdom and absolute good sovereignty, He knows will in, in the overarching effect result in His glory and our good. We can trust that. But in the moment, it's painful. In the moment, it's real suffering. It's not pretend. And we're to bear this in mind even as we deal with sin issues in the church. We're to be mindful 
that we have an enemy who looks for opportunities. This is why, dear ones, you need to confess your sins to each other and you need to forgive each other from your hearts because if you allow barriers to exist in this fellowship, I don't know of any right now, so no, I'm not preaching at you. If you feel like that, I know who's talking to you. And it's not me. It's the Lord through His Word. But this is why if you hold something in your heart toward a brother or sister in this fellowship, you need to forgive it. Because we have an enemy looking for opportunities. 2 Corinthians 2.10 Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. Paul says, I know my enemy. I know your enemy. I know the opportunities he looks for. So you need to forgive. Just like I have forgiven, you need to forgive. Don't give him an opportunity. Paul told the Ephesian elders the last time he met with them, Acts 20, verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul, how can you be so sure that after you leave, these elders are going to have to deal with wolves? How can you be so sure? Answer, because he's not ignorant of Satan's designs. But knowing that we have a spiritual enemy who sets these snares in, in and around every local church, what has God given us for such an enemy? I love what he says to those elders. I commend you. I turn you over to. I entrust you to God and to the Word of His grace, to the Word of God, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all. It's able to see you all the way home. I give you to God and to His Word which is able to see you all the way to your inheritance. That's the answer. When all else fails, read the instructions. And then bow your heart to those instructions. And believe them and obey them and walk in them. It is the living God and His Word that is the answer for the pillar and support of the truth of the living God. What does all of this testify to? Paul's passion, his patience, the urgency and sobriety of his instruction, the detailed nature of his instructions to the local church, his awareness that the churches are facing problems because of satanic activity. What does all this say? It says the Lord's church, the local church, is vitally important. And so I want to ask you, is it important to you? Do you have a passion for the local church? Do you have patience with the local church? Do you understand that all of heaven takes an interest in what is happening in local churches? That means this church. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is walking in the midst of the lampstands the candlesticks, and, and those are the churches. Where's our Lord tonight? He's walking in our midst. He's in the midst of His churches. So that when He gives those seven letters, He is able to give them specifics about how they're doing and where they're failing and where they're succeeding. Do you know He knows this church just like that? We just don't have a letter from Him telling us our diagnosis. and You can know that He has one. Do you understand that the church isn't self-styled? Well, I just don't know if that church is according to my taste. Can I just exhort you, brother or sister, sacrifice your taste? It doesn't matter what your taste is. Does it accord with the Scriptures? 
That's what you ought to have an appetite for. Amen? Does it accord with the Scriptures? Do you understand why there are problems? And that every problem in the life of a church actually represents an opportunity. I don't remember the details, but I remember hearing John MacArthur asked once how he responds to problems in the church, and he says something to this effect, I get excited because when problems exist, there's an opportunity for God's work to be done in a life, in a relationship. There's an opportunity. And we can know this, that our God and His Word is sufficient. Every problem this congregation will ever face so that when problems do arise, we ought to be excited because we know that our God will meet the need. And coming out of that will be spiritual growth and spiritual health, spiritual progress that perhaps would not be possible any other way. The church is important. God's people would say, Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your church that You have saved us and placed us in local expressions of Your family, gifted us that we might serve in these assemblies, serve our brothers and sisters. And not in the way that seems right to us, but in the ways that seem right, that are right, as revealed by You, we have instructions. So strengthen us, Lord, to read the directions and to believe them and to walk in what You've given us. And may all of our hearts be satisfied with that. May we understand the difference between peripheral preferences and what makes the church the church. And may our hearts be satisfied with churches that are faithful to Your Word. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.